these communities have an incredibly high threshold, a, a high tolerance for insecurity. So if they're the ones saying that it's dangerous, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, it's kind, it's kind of like if people on the south side of Chicago uh, were saying, man, you know, security is really a big issue. You're like, wow, like, yeah. this isn't like rural America. This isn't like suburbia. Like, you guys know what, you guys have lived in an insecure environment for a long time. If you're saying that this is bad even by your own standards, then why? We got we to gotta unpack why. Welcome to the One Year Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined today by Justin Richmond. He is the founder and executive director of Impel Project. Before starting Impel Project, Justin worked as a forward-deployed engineer at Palantir Technologies, where he led field implementation during both the Typhoon Haiyan and Typhoon Hagapit responses in the Philippines. Previously, he served two tours in Afghanistan as USAID's District Stability Framework Coordinator mentoring joint civilian-military Afghan teams on stabilization implementation in eastern Afghanistan. Prior to USAID, he served in the Army as a special operations team leader in the southern Philippines, focusing on stabilization, counterinsurgency, and information operations. Justin Richmond, welcome to the 1CA podcast. Thanks, John. I appreciate you having me. And uh, we'll note for the audience that you're on daddy duty right now, uh, recording from uh, a park somewhere in the country, and we appreciate your time. Of course, happy to do it. <laughs> uh, we want to talk about what you're doing at Impel Project. Um, and for listeners, that's spelled I-M-P-L. Uh, you said uh, you pronounce it simple without the S. That's right. And, uh, I mean, looking back, I think I probably could have done a better job on the branding. But I, you know, I wanted to make it pretty simple and straightforward, you know, that the, the focus of the um, – of the organization is implementation and execution of, of tasks on the ground. I think the biggest frustration I had with civil society when I was both in the military and with USAID was there's always just so much talk and people aren't getting out there in the tough places and doing the hard work. And so that's, uh, that's the reason we started the NGO. That's awesome. Well, that was leading to my question about the mission. Uh, so that's how you started it. What would you say is the, the mission of the organization? So, yeah, the mission of the organization is really to um, focus on, like, sustainable, solid development work in the most vulnerable communities. So the gaps that we identified, myself, the other founders, uh, one of whom was a um, civil affairs uh, officer back in uh, the time leading up to 2010, the gaps that we identified were, number one, a lack of data work, a lack of you know, really understanding what the local communities needed and how to deliver. The next thing that we saw, though, was that civil society wasn't doing a very good job at all of identifying, of identifying like which communities needed their work the most. I think anybody who's been deployed can honestly like look at their deployment and say, my goodness, like we did a few good things, but I don't know if we did it in the right areas. You know, getting State Department, USAID, NGO partners to program alongside uh, civil affairs teams has just been it's just been really difficult. Partly because civil affairs teams tend to operate much farther beyond the comfort uh, zone, the safety zone of civil society. So those are the gaps that we're looking to address, and I think we're doing a pretty good job. That's great. So I think that helps to answer a follow-up question I was going to have, which is. How is the Impel Project different from other development nonprofits? So, you know, what are you doing that's new or better than others? 
a number of things. And I, you know, I, and I don't feel arrogant saying that the, the places that we work, we have better data. We have a better fundamental understanding of what's going on in these communities and any, uh, it's partly because when I came out of Afghanistan, my biggest bone to pick with how we were doing work was that we were, um, we were spending so much money, but we really didn't understand the communities that uh, we were working in. Even key train districts, which were strategic priorities, we just really didn't understand it. Like outside of a couple of people sharing some anecdotes, that's it. You know, people will talk about you know, the, the notes that they took at Ashura and they spent $3 million according to those notes. I mean, that's not a representative sample of the community. So, so we really built this. I, you know, after USAID, I went to Palantir for two years to really learn how to do data. And it, it was a great lesson for me. Um, granted, I kind of stuck out like a sore thumb, a 35 year old uh, combat vet, you know, working at a Silicon Valley company. But it was a great experience. Um, and that was what kind of led us to say, we can apply these things very rigorously with a, uh, with an NGO. So let's try. That's cool. So, so the data side of it's huge. The other thing is there's probably two more aspects that I think are pretty unique. One is that we work in really non-permissive environments. So, um, like we were the first international NGO, uh, back in Benghazi. Um, in fact, this time last year, I had a team. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, my son's really excited about going down the slide. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, this time last year, I took a team of six expats into Benghazi, um, hired 45 Libyans, and we did the largest data mapping, um, of Benghazi ever. 4,500 face-to-face surveys, another two, three dozen uh, focus group discussions, key leader engagements, um, and had a better understanding of the dynamics in Benghazi than anyone, period. So like, we're able to create data scale really, really quickly and work in areas that are really, really tough. Okay. So, and these so clients are here. for DOD, USAID? Across the board. Right now, if you were to look at our funding structure, it is pretty much even between State Department, USAID, DOD, um, and then private sector firms. Um, okay. We are waiting on a couple uh, procurements right now that will then upset the balance. It looks like DOD is going to come out on top, and that's probably the thing that um, that's that's the third thing that makes us kind of special. Is we will partner much more closely with uh, U.S. military or host nation military than almost any other NGO that I know of uh, will. And the reason is because we're not neutral. Uh, like we've, we completely like believe that that's an antiquated uh, paradigm and I'll work with the military. I'll work with whomever is working in the best interest of the community. That's where my allegiance lies. So of the local community. Okay. Even if that's against us interests, it usually isn't. I've never run into an example of where the, what's in the best interest of the community uh, was not in the best interest of uh, the United States. Now, the thing that I run into more often than that is when the U.S. doesn't know what's, what the community actually wants, what they need, and so they don't know what the interests of the community are. That's the thing that I run into the most, because quite frankly, the people that are making um, a lot of decisions, whether it's the AOB, at the SOTUS, at the embassy, you know, they almost never, they almost never get out to these uh, rural communities. And we were working in Tilbury, Niger, two weeks before the uh, SF guys were killed there last year, uh, or I guess almost a year and a half ago now in Togo, Togo. So we were working in Tilbury, and it was a really, really rough environment. And the problem was, you know, for us, we were telling people how dangerous it was. 
but I, you know, people weren't really spending enough time with communities to get the sort of buy-in that they needed to have the type of protection and essentially people telling them like, hey, today's a good day to come out here or today is a horrible day to come out here. Don't do it. There's a lot of bad guys waiting for you. Right. So, you know, um, and that's that's one of the reasons that, you know, we're able to operate in these environments is because we're closely partnered with the communities themselves. Okay. And even and whether they like um, U.S. forces or not, they like us. Because we're actually bringing value. Wait, and once again, as a civil affairs person, civil affairs teams are able to bring value where other military uh, assets are not. Good point. Let me ask you uh, one other question, then we'll go to break. Um, you talk about data collection. There are a lot of tools for data collection. So what does Impl use, and you know, what kind of difficulties have you seen in infrastructure around the world when you're trying to collect data in remote areas? Sure. Uh, this, this is an easy question. It's actually a softball for me. Uh, so, look, when it comes to data collection, people need to understand what is the point, what is the so what that they're trying to get out of any sort of uh, data collection. So, like, we have standardized our hardware. We use all Apple iPads or iPhones. We use uh, commercial software to do the data collection. It's able to do it disconnected. Um, so that that application is called a quick test survey. And then we also put that data into the SOCOM uh, instance of uh, Palantir Nipper. So like that's kind of the way we string all this together. You know, all this stuff has to work every time. So if you're doing data collection, first off, if you're doing it by paper and pen, you're already wrong because the time and energy you're going to waste coding that data into a spreadsheet is just a waste of time. It's no one's got the time and energy to do that. So um, having something that you can, do, you know, essentially do all the data uh, management and knowledge management online in the cloud, that's exactly where you want to be. So those are the tools we use, and we spend a lot of time testing this. I mean, uh, rural Niger, uh, 2,300 surveys in 10 days. In Benghazi, Libya, 4,400 face to I think 15 days. And the reason that we were able to create that data scale is because we spent so much time honing the actual process. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of output. It is. But but this is the thing. If you, as a CA bubba, come up to me and say, hey, look, like, we're really interested in opening Benghazi up again. Uh, but, you know, the funding stream that we're talking about is only focused on youth. How much do we have for youth? Then from that 4,400, if I start disaggregating, you can say, you know, or I, I can say to you, well, you know, of the 4,400, uh, 2,400 are uh, under the age of 30. So we still have enough data scale and just samples that we can make some really good you know, analysis based upon that, that data. Whereas if you only do 1,000 surveys yeah. and you're now only looking at doing women, well, you're now down to 500. Right. Or you're only doing youth and you're at like 600. Yeah. For all the, uh, the barrack statisticians, yeah. you need uh, enough sample size and the power of the data you're collecting to be able to extrapolate. You really do. And the problem is that, number one, the U.S. government doesn't know how to procure data collection at all. It's horrible at it. It doesn't know how to, like, you know, set the proper requirements. They don't know what right looks like. And so, you know, I, in fact, we're getting called in for a certain uh, monitoring and evaluation uh, baseline, uh, base or um, end of program assessment for a USAID project. And they're like, yeah, you know, we're happy with, a, you know, a 99% confidence interval with a 6% margin of error. And I was like, really? Like, you spent millions of dollars on that project, and you're, you're comfortable with that? Because I'm not. When we were in Benghazi, we had a 99% confidence interval with a less than 2% margin of error. Wow. I, if I'm going to be operating in a really dangerous place, 
and spending other people's money, I want to have a really good understanding that like, this is what the dads say. This yeah. is how we can help communities. That's good use of American taxpayer dollars. Um, well, I mean, we, we've all, we've all seen when, uh, when people have been bad stewards. So, yeah. you know, I'm, we're, we're absolutely trying to correct that. Um, and the good news is when you have that much data scale, you can come back to it. Like if there are other questions, you know, we can come back and ask these things after the fact. But we thought working with the youth was going to be a really good idea. Man, it turns out the women are the real power placer in this community. Can we go back and we look at what the women say? Well, yeah, when you collect enough data, you can. Right. Um, and you can really start, you know, doing, you know, first order, second order, third order uh, planning and set those be- benchmarks, that phasing that uh, all programs require. So Good deal. Folks, you've been listening to an interview with Justin Richmond, founder and executive director of Impel Project. We'll be right back and ask Justin about the experiences with projects in the Philippines and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Stay tuned. Do you want to make some money? Do you have an idea about how to better integrate civil affairs? If you do, then check out the Civil Affairs Association Call for Papers. Civil affairs integration surfaced as the forefront issue for the future development of the regiment at the conclusion of last year's discussion at the Washington, D.C. Roundtable. However, in order for civil affairs to become a better joint force for integration across multiple domains in human geography, the regiment must first better integrate itself then with those it works for, by, with, and through. The Civil Affairs Association and its partners invite civil military professionals to send an originally written issue paper by no later than the close of business Friday 30 August. To better assist authors, you can find recent papers, reports, and articles, as well as an array of cited references and historical documents, and the new online research library under the association website page, Resources. You can also call upon the new Publications Advisory Board for assistance. They'll help you in crafting the argument for your paper. The top five papers will appear in the 2019-20 Civil Affairs Issue Papers, and authors will present them at the CA Symposium in Tampa, Florida in October. First prize is $1,000, second prize $500, and third prize $250. Good luck to all the authors. Welcome back. This is an interview with Justin Richmond. We're talking about Impel Project. And Justin, we want to get into some of the examples that you've had with projects in the past in the Philippines and the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, the Philippines, I know you've been to Mindanao. You, know, you re- recently got back. You've been working over there with uh, the SIMC, the Civil Military Support Element, on resilience building in areas with ISIS influence. Can you talk to people about how ISIS is getting a foothold in Mindanao and what's being done about it? Well, ISIS um, is getting a foothold in Mindanao because, like many of the most dangerous places on Earth, it's essentially an ungoverned space or poorly governed space. There's all kinds of historical grievances among the Bangsamore peoples. It is a it is fertile ground for radicalization. Uh, poverty is incredibly high. Grievances are high. There's just a in fact, it's probably one of the uh, most perfect places in the world if you want to set up an ISIS affiliate, except for one thing. Their brand of Islam in the southern Philippines just doesn't fit with uh, Salafism. And okay. that's the one thing that I got going for me when I'm down there. <laughs> Not a single person in the world, like, if I start getting into, you know, just asking questions about how Salafist are they, they're not. 
So that helps. Yeah. Um, when they're not able to kind of leverage the ideological level, then we're dealing with grievances. We're dealing with uh, economic incentives and um, you know power plays. So in Mindanao, in a lot of ways, it's like Game of Thrones. You know, everybody's just trying to get their family onto that uh, throne. Yeah. So what side of the Game of Thrones are are you helping to support right now? Man, I want to say I'm House Stark. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I, I uh, it's. So, you know, that, that's, I've never really thought of it in that way. I think maybe I've been too casual in talking about that. Because one of the, you know, one of the real tricks here is that my model is I'm always doing what's best in the best interest of the community. And one of the reasons I think that that's a great model for doing the, the type of civ mill support that I am is that communities can protect us better than any body armor and any, you know, up armored Humvee, uh, MRAP. I mean, if a community calls you and says, don't come out today. That's way better than uh, hoping that your armor is going to stop a uh, yeah stop a bomb. Well, Justin, I wanted to ask you about the DRC. So yeah, so this is actually kind of an interesting thing, man. So DRC was one of our first projects, but we haven't worked on it in three years. How long <laughs> do you think that kind of um, yeah? So I mean, there there are definitely some other other examples that are um, a lot better. Okay. Uh, but I think DRC is a great place to start. Because um, we were actually brought in by um, another NGO that wanted to do work in a pretty remote area um, of Eastern DRC. Um, it's a huge country. Where, oh, I, well, it's it's huge, like three or four countries, right? Yeah, and inaccessible in many places. Oh, a, a, absolutely. If you're in Kinshasa and I'm in Kalemi, which is all the way in the east, right next to uh, Lake Tanganyika, if I'm in Kalemi and you're like, hey, man, uh, we've got a meeting with the embassy, you know, what, when can you, I can't give you a straight answer. Yeah. I can't be like, I will be there in three days. There's no single road that connects Eastern Congo to, uh, Kinshasa. Yeah. Um, I'd probably have to fly, uh, I'd probably have to fly out of the country, wow. um, to through like Burundi or Rwanda to get over to Kinshasa. Like that is how, Wow. And so if you're wondering why uh, the Congolese government doesn't do that much for the East, it's because they don't really consider the East like a big part of their country. It's just not like here. Hmm. So, but the NGO that we were working with, they had this really peculiar problem, but they rightly assumed that data was the solution to it. This is from malaria? It is from malaria. So the problem is... Uh, malarial bed nets have kind of taken over the world um, in terms of anti-malarial interventions. The only problem is uh, those bed nets only work in in land-based communities, largely because when it comes to the land-based communities, you know they don't have they're growing they're growing their fruit or they're um, you know pastoralists, but probably not doing that well. But the the value of the malarial bed nets is to be hung up in homes, protecting them from uh, mosquitoes coming in. In water-based communities, like most of the uh, protein comes from fishing. And so people are doing so poorly that it's actually better for them to use the bed nets for fishing um, and to catch more fish than it is to use uh, use them for their intended purpose, which is keeping uh, mosquitoes away. Yeah. So These are the bed nets that have to be impregnated with chemicals right. every couple of years <laughs> to keep them current. That, that's right. That's right. And so, you know, you have young mothers that are wading out into the water. Sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, you've got the – can you hear my kids in the background? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, my, my little one's super excited about the swing. We um, need to put them in the so, credits for the show as well. 
Hey, absolutely. Uh, I hope that uh, I hope that uh, both my kids wear uniforms one day. So, <laughs> so yeah, they walk out into the water. They use the bed nets to uh, catch up the fish fry. You know, the 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 little like fish spawn. And then they harvest them, and they grind them up into a paste, and they eat them. And they're a great protein supplement, but the problem is it's absolutely destroying the fisheries. Absolutely destroying the fisheries. We also don't have good health data on what happens when people are ingesting uh, food that was, you know, kind of caught in this insecticide. But what the mothers will tell you is simply this. It's like, look, if my kid dies uh, from malaria or my kid dies from uh, starvation, what's the difference? The first need within my family is to feed that kid, and hopefully he or she will be able to uh, withstand malaria if they get it. Like, the problem is that the international community, I mean, malaria kills more people every year. I mean, I think, I think the number is like in the low millions, like 1.2 million people yeah. uh, die per year worldwide from malaria. Staggering. And yet, you know, people are like, well, just give everybody bed nets. And all this says is these problems are really tough. Uh, communities are struggling to fix them themselves. And a one size is never going to fit all. And that's pretty much the big message that we bring, you know, but we've had a really good success with that. In, you know, in the Southern Philippines, our first project, we, we chose a place in Maguindanao province. That, you know, it's a pretty dangerous place. But we, were do, we did our initial uh, surveying and one of the areas stood out very like clearly as identifying uh, security is the second highest grievance. Um, essentially, we asked, hey, what's the biggest problem facing your community? And while everywhere, pretty much, you know, categorically, lack of livelihoods, lack of food. Uh, but in this one specific area, lack of security was second highest at about 14%, 14, 18%. It's been uh, almost four years, so don't quite remember, but it was significant. And what was really kind of big to us was that these communities have an incredibly high threshold, a, a high tolerance for insecurity. So if they're the ones saying that it's dangerous, that's pretty bad. Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of like if people on the south side of Chicago uh, were saying, man, you know, security is really a big issue. You're like, wow, like, yeah. this isn't like rural America. This isn't like suburbia. Like, you guys know what, you guys have lived in an insecure environment for a long time. If you're saying that this is bad, even by your own standards, then why? We got we to gotta unpack why. And so when we, when we started working in this community, one of the first things I did was um, I went over to the school to do a, essentially a school assessment. And when I went, went into the high school classrooms, there were twice as many girls, you know, these cute uh, hijabi girls. Um, there were twice as many girls sitting in the high school classrooms as boys. And I was like, well, that's weird. Why are there twice as many girls here as boys? And as I went down and saw, because I went from like grade 10 all the way down to about grade three, and you know, by uh, grade three, four, five, um, it was still pretty even between girls and boys. But there was something that was going on in the community, which was uh, creating this huge disparity uh, that was manifesting itself within the education sector. So um, we did focus groups with all the teachers and said, hey, what's going on here? And they're like, well, the farms are failing. And so uh, the girls don't provide good farm labor. They're all going to go to college. But the boys, they can do, they can do menial labor. So uh, the farmers pull the boys out of school and put them to work. And I was yeah. like, okay, well, that's damn shame. Um, and I was like, does this, you know, have anything to do with the security problem? They're like, well, of course it does. I'm like, so the security problems that you're complaining about, does it have anything to do with, um, you know, the rebel groups that, that are around here and fighting with the armed forces of the Philippines? They're like, no, no, of course not. That, that was, that was 15 years ago. Like, no, this is, this is, uh, those boys 
you know, they're pretty depressed. And so they start uh, smoking meth at night, and then they got to figure out how they're going to pay for that meth. And so they steal cows and horses to do it because uh, that's the only capital that can be uh, that can be equally um, obtained. And I was like, y- y'all are blowing my mind. I never would have thought that like meth was a problem here. They're like, it is the biggest driver of crime in this area. That's I said, okay. So how do you even um, start to tackle that problem? Well, down school boys are symptom of the underlying issue, which, which is the failing farms. If uh, farmers aren't pulling their boys out of school, then they're not going to come out of school. So. Our main uh, method is promoting good community governance. Um, so we will start uh, cooperatives, organize these cooperatives, so that uh, they have to come together, vote, argue issues out, and essentially oversee all this. And what we're trying to do is, well, and what you see in a lot of these communities is that the families have had no real incentives to work together. So they're always playing a zero-sum game. They're always trying to figure out in this Game of Thrones um, how do they get to that throne, or how do they look at this pie that they're all, you know, this economic pie or this power pie that they're all looking at, and they're trying to figure out new and creative ways to divide up the same size pie. And I think that's a horrible idea. So what I tell them is if, if you can play by these rules and work together, we will grow the entire size of the pie so that everybody's better off. And it's not you guys against each other. It's all of you together against the world. And that's where we've had a lot of success. So we put um, so we put all these farmers into a cooperative together, and they only had to make two pledges to me. One was no harboring bad guys because uh, the material support clause in U.S. Uh, in the U.S. Contract statute, you had, yeah, exactly. I go to jail for that stuff. So no material support and no pulling their boys out of school anymore. If they were going to pull their boy out of school, they had to call me up and talk to me about it and figure out how we could keep them from doing that. And we said to him, hey, look, you know, um, I will fund one project for these first six months. You guys, you know, you can ask for whatever you want uh, so long as it's supported by the data. How do we solve this problem of your farms all failing? And they said, look, like every harvest, we lose 20 to 30 percent to rot. We just get too much rain. And we have no ability to dry or store this stuff. And either our stuff rots or we get abused by the um, by the middlemen, by the wholesalers who come in knowing that we can't store or dry this stuff and buy it at pennies on the dollar. And I was like, all right, that's a good argument. So what do you want me to do? They're like, build us a solar dryer. And and then my mind just went haywire because as soon as I hear solar, I'm having a flashback to Afghanistan for all the markets we strung up solar panels in that were stolen a week later, right? <laughs> so like, that was a real – I was like, oh, you God, need those not panels that. here. Yeah, exactly. Anything but that. Um, and they were like, no, 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 no. So I was like, okay, so what is a solar dryer? And they said, it's a big slab of concrete. And I'm like, that, that's it? They're like, yeah, we just need something to put all of our produce out so that we can um, – Yeah, so a really low-tech solution. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and it's sustainable. I mean, I have no idea what a solar dryer is. Yeah, solar dryers yeah. like that are used around the world to dry rice and other grains. Yeah. That, that's right. That, and that's all it is. It's literally <laughs> it's a glorified basketball court. We, we actually ended up putting uh, two basketball nets on, like one on either side, just so they could use it uh, so, the, so the youth could play basketball in between uh, uh, the harvest. <laughs> um, and, you know, we, so we copied it out. And on that very next harvest, it was finished just like three weeks, three weeks shy of the, um, of the harvest. During that harvest, they, they were able to buy five tons of corn that would have otherwise gone to rot. All that money was an immediate stimulus package for, for that community. 
And they ended up investing that into various like other micro enterprises. Worked out incredibly well. Yeah, cascading um, effects that greatly improved the community. Absolutely, and the grand total, like our cost for that entire project, I think was seventy five hundred dollars. <laughs> um, seventy five hundred dollars, and all, all this time while the thing is being constructed, you know, we're we're doing capacity building to, with the cooperative. They're voting on things, they're deciding on things. You're practicing how to come together as a community. Uh, because if they can make a cogent argument, to me, as to, you know, what will help uh, stabilize and, and make the community safer, you know, I'll pay for it. Yeah. So um, all this stuff went really well. We, you know, when we started the work, um, we always put um, observable baseline indicators in place um, that are cross-sectoral that will hopefully tell us whether or not we're having our desired impact. Because you can't, uh, you know, measure progress over time if you don't have a baseline. Right. So, you know, we had eight indicators, and four of them were really, really critical to this effort. Number one was obviously the number of security incidents, because one of the main goals and one of the main reasons we focused on this community was because they were ha- all of the breakdowns within their community, um, economically, uh, security-wise, governance-wise, was manifesting itself, you know, in these security incidents. So we were measuring the number of security incidents each month. But there's no police or military out there, so how do you measure security in a community without security forces? So that's what I asked them. How, how do I measure this? And I said, well, we kind of base our own like understanding of security by the number of cows and horses that are stolen in our community uh, each month. And I was like, well, can can you report that? Like, can that be like kind of our indicator? They're like, sure. So even to this day, we still measure the number of cows and horses that are stolen out of this community because that's the single best proxy security indicator we can come up with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we do, obviously, if we're having the intended effect, um, and we're going to see more boys going to school than girls. We're going to see that, or boys, more boys going to school than when we started the program. And that number slowly climbing up towards a parity with the girls. So we're measuring both of those, and we measure the number of microenterprises um, within the community itself. How many like you know, small businesses are there? Are they growing their own businesses? How, how is that going? Because part of our program was economic diversification and really helping them to have just a, a better portfolio. Yeah. So um, these are like and, the equivalent of yeah. the Army and Marine Corps listeners from CA National Security Community uh, measures yeah. of performance and measures of effectiveness. That's right. So we look at um, measures of performance as our outputs. You know, what did we do? And we looked at measures of effectiveness in, in terms of both outcomes and lar- larger impacts. Um, and was really powerful about this. You know, three years on, we have seen a 283% increase in microenterprise. We've seen a 65% increase in boys going to high school, which is insane. Like three years, a 65% increase. That's I mean, those are amazing numbers. Yeah. Um, in fact, some farmers are doing so well that they're por- putting their boys that they pulled out in fifth grade back into eighth grade and ninth grade, and those boys are really struggling to get caught back up. In fact, probably one of the last programs we're going to do it out there is essentially a GED program uh, okay. to help help, help the, the youth get caught up. Considering um, where you started from, that's a good problem to have. Exactly. Um, in fact, that, that's what we're dealing with. I was just out there two weeks ago. Uh, and they're doing so much better than all the other communities around them. I'm like, it's about time for us to transition, y'all. You, you don't need us anymore. Yeah. You need kind of the, the big, easy NGOs. Uh, but, you know, now you're in, in a spot where you can you can engage with them. Yeah. Uh, but, but security incidents have dropped, on average, zero per month. It's about one every three months, wow. which is negligible. It's safer than my hometown. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. But very importantly... 
you know, our hypothesis has always been helping these communities to come together, work collaboratively, incentivize them to, to come together and work collaboratively with our, our programming funds. We believe that if they got those the, that muscle memory uh, to working together on some issues, that that would carry over into other issues. And what happened was in, man, late 2016, early 2017, uh, the Philippine military had pushed the uh, essentially the INCOAT ISIS uh, cell um, across the mountains and into the, this community, uh, into this uh, area called Barrera. And these are mostly, a, a lot of them were former MILF fighters. They're pretty tough and they don't take kindly to people coming in and upsetting their game. Yeah. And so um, ISIS came in and said, hey, look, you know, you're Muslim, we're Muslim, help us out, give us a safe haven. And they're like, eh, no, um, we've got a really good thing going for us, so you're not welcome. And they're like, well, you know, we're ISIS, so we've got all these guns, what are you going to do about it? And they're like, that's that's not the pitch that's going to work on this community. <laughs> so they Oh, that's cute, thanks. Yeah, that's exactly, they're like, yeah, uh, precious. Um, and then they called up a local MILF commander, um, who many of them served with and fought side by side with. And they had the MILF, some of our, uh, you know, some of our, um, co-op members, you know, joined this, but they sent a company, uh, size element out to hit the ISIS guys, uh, killed a few of them, wounded a few more of them and drove them out of the area. And what's really great about that is it's resilience. Um, it's them figuring out how to solve their own problems lacking government intervention. And I think for the places that I work in, I mean, would it have been ideal if they called up the Filipino military? Yes. But they don't trust the Philippine military because the Philippine military doesn't show up out there. You know, rule number one for all this stuff is you got to show up. Yeah. However, they had something to, to fight for. They had something to defend. And they had that deal explicitly with me. Like, hey, if they're providing safe haven, I can't be working in that community. And so their solution was we called the local MILF commander who we trust. Um, and who is now part of the, a big peace deal. So, you know, they're not really rebels anymore. And, um, yeah, they, they put a company size element and pushed the, um, and pushed them out of the area. So it's pretty good. Yeah. Some good news stories. But yeah, you know, that, um, that case study has led us to learn some really good lessons in our, and that is now our flagship program that we've been replicating around the world. So, man, that's good stuff. Folks, you've been listening to an interview with Justin Richmond, founder and executive director of Impl Project, which stands for Implementation. For more information, you can go to implproject.org. That's I-M-P-L project.org. Justin Richmond, thank you very much for being on the 1CA podcast. Man, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.